friends, uh, great expectations can be a risky business, don't you think? I mean, on the one hand, uh, having high expectations about something, that can be really fun, it can be a really energising thing to, to, to have, to be, to be filled with anticipation, to be filled with excitement, to be really eager and expectant, to be counting the days down towards something, that, that can be really enjoyable. The young child waiting for Christmas Day to arrive. Uh, the bride and groom uh, eagerly awaiting for the big day to finally get here. Uh, on the big family holidays that, that we've had where we take our little camper trailer on trips, half the fun has just been planning for them. Uh, Penny Jenkins from Early Church said this to us and we didn't believe her at the time, but it's true. You get out all the maps, you put together your itinerary, you read up on all the attractions and the build-up for the trip, the expectation is almost as good as the trip itself. Mind you, it can work the other way, can't it? Uh, great expectations can lead to great disappointments when it doesn't work out the way you'd thought. You know, the holiday you've been planning and daydreaming for so long and when it finally gets here, the weather is terrible, the, w- the room doesn't look nearly as nice as it did in the photos, uh, you come down with the flu, the car starts playing up. You ever had a holiday like that? Where... Just the heightened anticipation only led to even worse expectation, uh, worse disappointment. What about the book you've been looking forward to reading for so long, the movie you've been waiting for to come out for so long, you finally get to read it or see it and it's just a dud. You really want to like it, but you can't. Uh, great expectations can be a risky business. And I raise it all this morning because last week the Old Testament led us to have incredibly great expectations about our future as God's people. Last week we saw that a day was coming when God was going to usher in nothing less than new heavens and a new earth. And last week we saw that Isaiah 65 especially really hyped up how good this new creation is going to be. That this new creation is going to be nothing less than a new physical world where pain and sadness and death and tension and frustration will all be done away with. This is going to be a new world order where all the things that are making life hard for you at this very moment, they will all be gone. Now that is a very great expectation. I hope we don't get disappointed when it actually gets here. What if the new heavens and the new earth don't live up to all the hype? Friends, the good news is that when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is what we're doing today, what we discover is affirmation after affirmation after affirmation that what God has promised about the new creation, when it finally gets here, guys, you will not be disappointed. In fact, the New Testament goes as far as to say that for God's people this side of the cross, our future hope is even better than the one described in the Old Testament, which is an intriguing claim to make. Isaiah 65 last week, that sounded like perfection itself. How can you get an improvement on that? In what sense can we have an even better hope? The New Testament insists that we can and that if God's people in the Old Testament could have great expectations, you and I, this side of the cross, we can have greater expectations. You'll never guess, it's all to do with Jesus. Come with me to our Bible reading, Hebrews 7, and in particular verses 8 and 9. This is where we're going to zero in on today. Sorry, 18 and 19. 
The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect but a better hope, there's our key phrase, our better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now friends, that verse appears uh, in the middle of a quite long and complex discussion about how Jesus has brought into being a really quite revolutionary connection between God and us. A connection between God and us which is far superior to any connection that existed in the Old Testament. And here in 18 and 19 the writer concludes that this connection that Jesus has initiated between his people and God, that that leads to a better hope by which we can draw near to God. In what sense better? Well, let's discover that by considering these two verses in in sort of two main stages. Firstly, what exactly is this former regulation that's been done away with? And secondly, how does this contribute to a better hope? Firstly, the former regulation. What's that a reference to? Simply put, it's a reference to the regulation in the Old Testament that the descendants of Levi had to serve as priests in the Old Testament. Now look, I'm sure as many of you are aware, priests were a very big deal to Israel in the Old Testament. It's because priests were the middlemen. They were the go-betweens between God and Joe Average Israelite. And the reason you needed these go-betweens was because God was perfect. He is holy and pure. God hates being in contact with sin. He hates sin. Trouble is people, uh, you and I, Israelites, heck, we're all sinful. And so if God's going to be Israel's God, then Israel are going to need people who can be the go-betweens, who can mediate, who can negotiate stuff between them and God. And and that's where the priests came in. They were the go-betweens between a sinful Israel and a holy God. And part and parcel of the arrangement was that the priests would then offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Sacrifices were made to turn away God's justifiable anger about sin. Sacrifices were offered by the priests so as to bring forgiveness to the people. Now all this has relevance to verse 18 because this former regulation that's being referred to, it's the regulation that these priests of Israel had to be descendants of Levi. They had to come from the right family pedigree. But Hebrews wants to make the point that Jesus has now come along and he's a priest and so the regulation has been set aside because Jesus has made an even better priest. If we back up a little bit to verses 15 and 16, it'll actually explain it to us a little bit. Verse 15. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, that's Jesus, and here's the crunch, verse 16, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Now look at, those ver- look at that verse 16. You see the point that's being made? Jesus is a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. In other words, he's not a priest because he was born into the right family. He's a priest on the basis of having the right sort of life, an indestructible life. Jesus is a priest, quote, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. What's the big deal about an indestructible life? Well, it's because Jesus can now be a permanent priest. Unlike the Old Testament priests, you know, they used to die out, they'd have to get replaced by another descendant. He now is someone who can be a single, everlasting mediator between us and God. 
Look at verse 23, it teases us out a bit for us. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests, that's the Old Testament ones, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, there's that indestructible life again, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You're getting the point here? I know it takes a little bit of concentration but I'm telling you it's worth it. There are, there are huge dividends to be paid at the end of this. Hebrews is saying that that arrangement with the priests in the Old Testament, that former regulation where you had an endless stream of different descendants of Levi to serve as your priests, as each one died it would have to be replaced by a new, by a new priest, Jesus is a huge improvement on that regulation for he is a priest who lives forever and therefore he is the only mediator you will ever need between you and God. Jesus will never need replacing, he will never need upgrading, he has the indest- an indestructible life. In fact, Hebrews doesn't even finish there because Jesus is said not only to be the only priest you'll ever use, need, he's also the only sacrifice you'll ever need as well. Look what, what, look what Hebrews keeps saying in verse 26. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now friends, the big deal about Jesus being a priest, the big deal just got a lot bigger. Not only does Jesus' indestructible life qualify him to be an everlasting priest, what happens is that the sacrifice he offered for the sins of the people turns out to be an everlasting sacrifice as well. A sacrifice for sin we're told once for all because the sacrifice he offered was himself. It is of course a reference to the cross. It is of course a reference to what we're going to be celebrating in a few moments with communion that when Jesus was crucified, he died in our place. He took on himself our punishment for our sin and in so doing became our sacrifice. And now actually he became the ultimate sacrifice by virtue of his perfect life. He completely removes sin forever. Can you believe that? No matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have done it, when you are one of Jesus' own, your life has been repaired from sin so much that it will never again threaten your connection with God. For an everlasting sacrifice has been made by an everlasting priest. Now this is radical. So radical that I'm wondering whether a lot of churches still haven't woken up to it. Because you walk into some church buildings on a Sunday morning and you'll discover that there's people in funny clothes wandering around called priests. And there's a part of the building that you're not allowed to go into because God somehow lives up that end of the building like a temple. And people treat the meeting as if it's some sort of sacrifice. It's even called a service, as if it's some sort of offering to God which is going to make him happy. And, And you do things in this service that you'd never do any other time in the week. And the official line of some churches is that the, the communion is actually a sort of re-sacrifice of Jesus. It is all Old Testament and it's all gone. 
the ultimate connection exists between us and God. For an everlasting priest has made an everlasting sacrifice. And as a result, any other priest and any other sacrifice is now completely redundant. The former regulation has been set aside. Do you think you can see now why verse 19 says that a better hope has been introduced? It's a better hope in the sense that with Jesus we now have better confidence with God. We now have better intimacy with God. We now have better acceptance by God. We now have better security with God. It's a better hope in the sense that it's a more certain hope. It's a more confident hope. It's a more assured hope. We have a sure and certain future because of the absolute certain acceptance that we have before God through Jesus. Everlasting priest, everlasting sacrifice. The story is told of a priest uh, in the Philippines. I think I might have mentioned this story before. It serves as a point. A, a priest in the Philippines who carried the burden of a sin that he committed many, many years ago. Uh, he'd repented of it and he'd asked God for forgiveness but he, he just didn't feel forgiven. Do you have stuff like that in your life? You know, stuff you've done and you've asked for forgiveness but you just don't feel it. In this church was a woman who claimed to have visions in which she spoke with Jesus. And the priest, however, was pretty sceptical about this. So, so as to test her then, he said, well, look, the next time you and Jesus are talking, uh, ask him what sin it was that your priest committed when he was in Bible college. The woman agreed, accepted the challenge. A few days later, the priest asked, well, have you been chatting to Jesus lately? Well, yes, I was. And did you ask him what sin I committed in Bible college? Yeah. What did he say? Jesus said, I don't remember. Now that's a lovely story and I don't want to get into the whole did she really talk to Jesus type thing. What I, lo- what I love is that it captures something of what Jesus has done for us as an everlasting priest offering an everlasting sacrifice. That at this very moment, can you believe it? If you are a follower of Jesus, at this very moment, God looks on you as perfect. And if you are to ask him about stuff that you've done in your life that you regret and feel guilty about, the sins in your life, he would say, sin? What sin? I don't recall any sin. Can you pour that back into the topic of hope? Can you now see that the great expectations that we were left with from last week about the coming of new heavens and a new earth, can you see that as great as those expectations were, as people of the New Testament, we can have greater expectations? In fact, I want to go one step more and I want to say that we can have perfect expectations. Did you notice the way the passage started? Verse 11. If perfection could have been obtained. Or verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The implication in those words is that, well, now it has been made perfect. Now perfection has been obtained. Because even though there are great expectations in the Old Testament, we can have perfect expectations. For the perfect priest has offered the perfect sacrifice so as to make you 
perfect. And he has reserved for you a place in a new creation which is perfect. A few years back, uh, I took some long service leave, as some of you would be aware, and uh, the whole family, we went on this adventure dragging a little old camper trailer around Australia. On that trip, one of the really... uh, one of the things we're really, really looking forward to was coming back home through a little town called Monash in the Riverland district of South Australia. This this is not Monash in Victoria, this is Monash in South Australia. It's only a little place, population 200, uh, and in some ways it's stuck in the middle of nowhere, but the reason we were so keen to go back through there is that this little place has an absolutely massive adventure playground in it. Has anyone else been... Yep, it's got to be one of the best kept secrets in Australia. It, it is really weird. We stumbled across it the first time. We were just looking around for a park to you know, have a cup of tea and go to the toilet and you turn the corner and there, it, there is just this huge playground and there is long, big, twisty, slippery dips and there's ropes and climbing towers and this huge flying fox and this massive, big timber maze that you can get lost in for ages and there's free barbecues and ladders and seesaws and swings, not just piddly little swings but great big chains that really throw you out. It's immaculately cared for. It is absolutely free. It's the sort of stuff you pull up outside and you think, oh, there's got to be an entrance fee to this. You just walk in. We were there for ages. Monash, South Australia, organising next holiday around it. Anyway, here we are. We've come back all the way back around from um, uh, Western Australia uh, and we're really looking forward to getting into this park again. Our expectations were very high indeed because we knew what we were in for. Fantastic. Turn the corner. There it is. Locked. Great big gates shut across it padlocked, closed. I thought I was going to cry, let alone the kids. So much anticipation. So much disappointment. Now friends, I do not want to, to trivialise the new heavens and the new earth by comparing them to an adventure playground. But can you imagine how tragic it would be to have all this hype and expectation in the Old Testament. Can you imagine how tragic it would be to have all this anticipation of a wonderful new world without pain or suffering or mourning? How tragic would it be for it to arrive and to not get in? To be locked out because your connection with God is just not what it should be. The New Testament wants you to know that's never going to happen for the follower of Jesus. Because for the follower of Jesus, our place in the new heavens and the new earth, it's booked, it's paid for, it's got reserve signs stuck all over it because an everlasting priest has made an everlasting sacrifice. And as great as the expectations were in the Old Testament, ours are greater. No, no, we can afford to have perfect expectations. For the perfect priest has made the perfect sacrifice to perfectly reserve a place for you in a perfect world. Because the former regulation is set aside since it was weak and useless, through Jesus a better hope is introduced.
by which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the wonderful certainty that we can have of the new heavens and the new earth because of Jesus. Father, thank you that your son has an indestructible life and at this very moment is mediating for us. And thank you that he has made an everlasting sacrifice that has repaired us of sin so much that we have perfect acceptance by you. Father, these are wonderful things that Jesus has done for us. Help us to drink them in. Amen.